0: Hello. Can I speak to to Marion? this? Hey, how you doing? Uh, I feel kind of silly doing this, but um, this is the Bush, just from
1: the coffee house on MLK and Park. You know, the one with the four C natural. I see you on Thursdays all the time. You come in every Thursday on your lunch break, I think, and you
0: always order the special.
1: With the organic time, like you' My to be tripping and stuff. Talking about we gotta use water. But I always use some head milk for you. Cause I think you're kinda of
2: sweet. Um... How did you get my number?
1: You always got on some fly blue tracksuit. And your Air Force voice
3: is shining all bright. Thanks. For real though. Who so is this?
1: So uh... Look man. I mean, I don't want to waste your time, but I don't usually do this. And I was wondering if maybe we could get together outside the coffee shop one day. Because I do look a lot different outside of my work clothes. Okay. I mean, I got an art show coming up soon. Yeah, I'm an artist. Maybe you could come out and support? Wait, hold up. My cell phone's breaking up. Hold up. Can you hear me now?
0: Yeah, so, what do you think? Can you come to my show? Uh, Who All Gonna Be There.
1: All right. Hey y'all, welcome to Who All Gonna Be There, a podcast by artists for artists. We talk cash shit about everything, sometimes we get messy, and it all counts as art because we say so. I'm Mel, I'm black and a woman and an artist, sometimes simultaneously, sometimes alternating, never deviating. This week, I'm a notary public, an oral historian, and a Tesla insurance adjuster.
2: Yo, what's up? I'm Maximiliano, aka Maxi Max, um, co host, and ready to jump into everything today. For those of you at home that are wondering, these are the ways you can support that term project. You can become a patron uh, by checking out our Patreon, which uh, we have our exclusive Book of Sedition zines. We have our explicit Behind the Paywall podcast where we get extra messy. You can check out our Etsy store, which is full of totes, buttons, and various NTP publications, including our Black Abbey residency, um, about our Black Abbey residency. (laughs) Shout out Sherita Town. And you can find us on iTunes and all streaming platforms. Leave a review. Send comments, questions to Project 0 at gmail.com.
1: Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us once again to this little podcast of ours. We are really excited and a little bit nervous to welcome today Mike Crenshaw. Mike, how are you?
4: I'm wonderful. Thank you both so much for having me. Um, it's funny, I just did a show at the Alberta Abbey last night. It was my first show over there. Oh, okay. Yeah, with, I did something with Yawa, AKA Aminta Abioto, and um, Johnny Cool. Those are two of my favorite uh, Black artists in Portland. Nice, how'd it go? It was good, you know, it's a small crowd uh, trying to get things up and running after the pandemic. Uh, It's a little bit touch and go, but it was still, everyone had a great time, I I really enjoyed it. It sounded good, it looked good, so, cool. It's so important, I had to meet you in the middle of nowhere. I'm not wasting my time. Uh, You got a lot of time,
5: maybe. Flag draped on a denim for the nameless, the victims of hanging and lynching, the rape of the women, justified by the lies of a racist religion. Hatred and venom disguised as patriotism You can't blame me for being a little angry and bitter Creative and driven, it made me consider What I say to the rhythm with painstaking precision That comes from taking a minute, concentrating, contemplating Making major decisions to change the way I've been living Stay awake and envision this new faithful beginning Time for a shift, transmit the transition Staring in the abyss, stop, looking, listen Different perspectives are interconnected The artificial's getting rejected I won't accept it It's getting hectic cause certain sectors Exist to protect it And now they feel threatened How many times civilization been destroyed? With all this intellect man We can't avoid The worst case scenarios Earthquakes and floods Fascist establishments Pathogens and blood With no known cure Hole in the ozone sure to expand Africans ravaged for their resources and lands Earth's inhabitants don't stand a chance Led by savages that are technologically advanced Corruption, destruction, something just ain't right It ain't right We're doing our best, we still be oppressed And we're running, we're running out of time Confusion, confusion, there's a inside for the worst, and hope for the best. Yo, it's not about fear, but it's about being clear. So much to gain as the end draws near. Not to hush your worry, but I won't rush your scurry. i walk with purpose through the destructive fury. People push and hurry with their vision so blurry. They hit walls that fall on them. They're getting buried, the enamel cracks on the facade, the camel's back snaps, dismantled by the straw Armageddon, his relative, check your intelligence, Millions are homeless exposed to the elements, bombs evaporate buildings, decapitate children and now the soldiers are suicidal, after they kill them, is the jihad, it's worse for sacrificing himself, or the US soldier who just killed someone else over and over, just following orders, like an arcade game just swallowing quarters, the plot thickens the victims are not forgetting I'm watching the clock and it hasn't stopped Ticking. so you want to get paid you're staying enslaved and the paper you making is digging the grave your family's eating, but they're swallowing death you set the example when they follow your steps where you're running to you're running out of time what you gonna do that's the bottom line get right with myself and then get right with my god get right with my loved ones and work real hard embrace my health and aim for the stars speak from my heart and teach through the art bad news is nothing new under the sun all issues emerge and fuse as one better learn to be happy laugh more have fun cause at any second we could all be done corruption destruction something just ain't right we're doing our best to still we're oppressed and we're running out of time confusion evolution no solution inside Corruption, destruction, something just ain't right We're doing our best, but still we oppress, And we're running out of time Confusion, confusion, no solution inside Prepare for the worst and come for the best Cause we're running out of time It's a good time to be alive. And that's what I'm saying. I've been peeping this since I was a youngster. Looking at it all go by and predicting and staying in touch with the energy that I was feeling. And it's coming to this, the present situation. It's what we make it. Yeah. 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 Time for a bio.
2: Mike Crenshaw is an MC rapper, spoken word artist, poet, activist, and educator. Born in Chicago, Mike taught himself to rap beginning at the age of eight and began doing it professionally in 1994 after he arrived in Portland.
1: In 2001, Mike won the Portland Poetry Slam Championship and is actively involved in the African Hip Hop Caravan, an annual event put together by various African hip hop collectives that tours through cities in Africa, performing and creating an international hip hop community. Mike's music has been featured in a number of venues. And he has collaborated and performed with internationally acclaimed acts such as the Fugees, Outcast and Wu-Tang Clan. So, first of all, Mike, we want to ask you the question we've been asking every guest since March of 2020: um, How are you doing, and how are you kind of coping with all of this?
4: Um, I'm asking a lot of questions. You know, it's funny when I when I bump into people at my job, my day job as a teaching artist in the high school or I see people on the street, you know, when I'm running errands in the community, they'll say things like, how are you doing? And I'll be like, I think I'm doing good. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like, there's such a full spectrum experience. Cause I think a big part of it for me is like, since I was a child, I've been really sensitive and my third eye has been open like really wide. And one of the thing, and I think a lot of us are feeling this, It's like the science fiction dystopian apocalyptic um, content that was in so many books and movies. Um, And, you know, I remember like in my environmental science class in high school, like learning about the impact of, of all the industries on the environment, but we're here now, you know, it's no longer a distant thing. And the pandemic and George Floyd had a way of making experiences that were only available to certain um, people more of a universal experience. And so in a a strange way, there's there's a lot of really awesome potential to to understand that our fellow human beings in, in at least in my lifetime have this unprecedented opportunity to like acknowledge um, the inextricable links that we have to each other, to creation, to existence and, and to a common destiny. Yet and still there's on a weekly basis, there's more and more bad news that gets exponentially worse, right? So like when I was a kid, Nuclear uh, apocalypse was my worst nightmare. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to have nightmares about people trying to flee a city on the freeways and and through the streets and there would be this gridlock and there'd be like this wave of nuclear lava coming to like incinerate us all, right? And now because of what we've been going through in the last couple of years, so many people are at capacity. Like we don't even have the bandwidth to entertain The potential outcomes that we're facing like on our doorstep like now not even some distant thing 10 20 years down the road you know combine that with the climate crisis and the ongoing war on blackness um, on indigenous people um, on non-binary people um, on marginalized people the increasing converging crises of mental health um, addiction and economic failure and late stage capitalism. These are all these things that used to be something that some of my peers and family would be like, oh, that's all external. But I think that the external is really, we're able to see right, well, I'm able to see when I, when I check in with myself and do a scan of, of how I'm feeling, the external is um, just as profound as what I'm feeling internally. And I can, I can, I can talk about self-care. I and I can try to get more um, disciplined about my practice with prayer or meditation or, or fitness or eating right. But the reality is the way that I'm feeling and the way that I'm thinking is a product of the world we live in.
1: Sorry, I'm just kind of um, digesting that. Um, So when you say that the way that you're thinking and the way that you're feeling is a product of the world that we live in, I guess my, my, my question for that is, do you feel that you have like, any sense of agency in the way that you feel about these things since a lot of the things that are happening are sort of out of our control
4: yeah, and that's that's why I'm an artist an activist and an educator um, I think I've become if you listen to the words uh, that I choose in my lyricism one of the one of the beautiful things. Uh, is that for the first time in my life, I feel like my lyrical content is recognizable as, um, to be as, as, as uh, profound as I intended it to be. Um, the subjects that I write about are all plain to see. Um, things that people used to talk about and consider conspiracy theory are actually just reflections of reality. Mm-hmm. The question I have, uh, you know, I've made a career over 30 years talking, describing this moment that we're in and how to take agency in the onset um, and leading up to this moment. And so what I'm looking at now is I have the skill set as a visionary, as an artist, as a creative person, as an educator, and as an activist to not only dream, but be engaged in the work of creating the world that we want to see. And so I have to have a determination in the face of extermination um, that draws on the strength of those that came before us, um, like Nat Turner, like Harriet Tubman, like Malcolm X, like Asada Shakur, because those people were fighting to win, even if it cost them their lives. Um, even if it costs them their freedom and that's the determination that I have to hold so as long as I can feel motivated and inspired to continue to do the work and to be able to love and smile and laugh and have joy and eat good food and you know take trips (laughs) then we're gonna be all right
2: Um, I'm curious to hear about like some of like your early organizing um, and like the with the creation of the anti-racist action mm-hmm. and like how that like, came about. And also like um, if it's like when you were like first starting to organize, were you thinking of it as organizing or was it like later on, I was that like, oh, this is like organizing.
4: We thought of it as um, organizing because we knew we had to get organized um we might not have called called it organizing and so to for those of us that don't know uh, max just said the founding of anti-racist action so anti we founded. when i say we i'm talking about my peers and myself my best friends and i were a tight-knit group of kids in the minneapolis hardcore punk scene multi-ethnic group of working class kids who decided we wanted to uh adopt the skinhead subculture. Uh, we understood that the skinhead subculture was something that was uh, more disciplined, if not militant expression of hardcore um, subcultural street, you know, expression and activity. From the music to the dress code to the attitude. Um, and as we uh, started to identify And adopt a look. You know, we developed camaraderie. Um, We were on the streets together every day, almost um, going to shows, going to record stores, going to parties, hanging out, skating. And before long, there was another group of uh, so-called skinheads, we called them boneheads, um, that was organized by this guy Paul Hollis in the streets of Minneapolis. And they were called the White Knights. And Paul Hollis was actually a Ku Klux Klan member. And so he organized this group of white skinheads uh, to be a hate group, a neo-Nazi hate group. Now, mind you, we're all teenagers, anywhere between 15, 18, 19 years old. And once we found out that they were trying to hang out on our scene, we heard that they had been attacking homeless people, Um, they have been gay bashing, they attacked some people of color. And so we confronted them. Um, now this, what what gets weird is most people think of skinheads as all white power Nazis, but what people don't understand and what we were studying at the time was that the roots of the culture came from West Indian immigrants, Blacks, going back, going to Britain, because, you know, Jamaica was a, a British colony. And so, after World War II there was a migration of a lot of Jamaicans to England, to look for a better life and a better economy, right? Jamaica was basically a banana republic, you know? And the urban populace of uh, West Indian black immigrants going to England mixed with the working class white kids. And that's where the, the, the Jamaican music started, you know, being incorporated into the white, I guess, uh, palette or whatever. And so those two cultures mixing together was the root of the original skinhead culture. And so we studied that and we knew that the original skinheads weren't racist, right? So we were, we were adhering to that. And when the, when the Nazis showed up, the reason that the Nazis became popular in the United States in the 80s is because a lot of the, the sensational reality uh, media shows at the time, Maury Povich, or no, I don't even know if Maury was on the end, but Donahue, Sally, Jesse, Raphael, even Oprah, they were showcasing these white boys talking about hate and it made it look cool to a lot of white kids that were watching TV. The other thing is this socioeconomic backdrop in, in Reagan's America was a lot like Trump's America in which there was a cry for austerity from the wealthy and the, the elite. Um, there were cuts to the social safety net and there was a lot of scapegoating and xenophobia about immigrants and people of color being the root of crime and taking jobs and so that same environment helped to move white people to the right. And so some of their, their children were showing up and becoming Nazi skinheads. So we confronted that actively in Minneapolis. And as we did that, we had to organize for self defense um, because it was violent. Um, we were fighting, you know, sometimes daily um, on a regular basis. And we had to build unity with other anti-fascist and anti-racist. And that was the beginning of us reaching out to other cities in our region. So we were in Minneapolis, we reached out to Chicago, Minneapolis touch base with Milwaukee, Indianapolis, Indiana, Madison, Wisconsin, Lawrence, Kansas, Detroit. And we invited anti-racist skinheads and anti-fascist youth from each of those cities to Minneapolis. To have a syndicate meeting. And that first syndicate meeting was either 87 or 88. Going outside of the mostly anti racist skinhead core membership of the syndicate, we also built alliances with um, different gang- ethnic gangs, um, other punks, anarchists, um, activists, you know, all types of different subcultural groups to unite and fight fascism and to fight Nazis in our city and in our region. And that was the beginning of anti-racist action.
2: It seems like um, with like a lot of like um, organizing or like the desire to like have, um, you know, you have something you wanna change. Sometimes it seems like
0: uh,
2: the the outcome or like the goal is maybe not as tangible, but with having something, um, like your goal of like having an anti racist scene or kicking like the boneheads out seems like more tangible and also like being able to like accomplish that like um, at a young age seems so like empowering but also like can like make you yeah seem like, oh, this is like a possibility. This is something that I can do. Or um, yeah, it just makes it seem like things are actually possible to change.
4: Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of that had to do with the youthful, uh, exuberance, uh, the lack of having a lot to lose. Um, you know, a lot of us weren't parents. Um, we, you know, we were young enough to not have the kind of, um, discretion that we would have had if we were, you know, a decade older. Um, so fighting in the streets for what we were passionate about to us seemed like we were the vanguard and what the fuck was anyone else gonna do? The adults in our community that were liberals or progressives weren't doing anything, you know. So it was up to us to confront this and, and use the only language that these fools understood. Racial terrorists, uh, the Klan, you know, they're 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 proud of their record of murdering people in the name of white supremacy and hate. And um, we understood very clearly what that meant. They were a violent threat to our existence. their, Their rhetoric, their philosophy, their ideology was something that they were willing to back up with violence. And that in and of itself is a form of violence. So we were ready to engage that. Now that said, as I began to grow Uh, Adults in the community would intervene and play uh, different mentorship roles along the way. And I began to get a political education. And I started to understand that the racism and the white supremacy that was expressed by these fringe groups um, was part of a deeper systemic historic issue that was, was inextricably linked to Western expansion through colonialism and imperialism and capitalism and white supremacist patriarchy. And at the root cause, I begin to understand, develop an analysis around the root causes of systems of oppression. And that's when things become more complex and more difficult because you can't, you know, we, even fighting the Nazis, we got them out of our scene, but ultimately they just went underground. And we know that they they bided their time because what they understood more than a lot of people were willing to admit is that white supremacy is mainstream. It's uh, very diverse and complex in the ways that it operates culturally, intellectually, systemically, politically, economically, and I would even say spiritually. Uh, There are those who are very in tune and aware and intentional about how they use it to their advantage advantage and benefit um, as individuals as well as collectively as a culture of white supremacy. And I think the most effective people um, are able to pass off what they're doing in a way that it's hard to uh, explicitly identify as racism or white supremacy, right? And to, to look at that, we have to. Every institution in our society is a function of white supremacist domination. And you know, when you get into so-called adulthood and you become responsible for your economic circumstances, food, clothes, shelter, education, healthcare, um, the ability to operate with some degree of comfort, stability, and peace of mind, that's when you start to encounter the invisible systemic walls and barriers and limitations that are an expression of white supremacy. And that's something that you can't just beat with a baseball bat. That's something you can't put on a pair of brass knuckles and scare out of town.
2: So did that like getting to that like point um, lead you to start like thinking differently of um, ways of like, yeah, wanting to, um fight against those things
4: yeah you know it started with uh, a big shout out to a mentor of mine sherry honkala was a high school teacher you know she's still organizing with the poor people's army she's out in philly but you know her and a couple other uh elder activists in the community and educators intervened and said hey man if you if you keep doing what you're doing the way you're doing it you're going to be dead or in jail and you, you're, looking, you're fighting against the symptoms, but you wanna look at the root cause of these issues. So they began to give me a political education. Before long, I was recruited in a more movement, social justice movement-based organizing um, that was more multi-generational. And I began to understand that consciousness and awareness you know through studying and reading about history and organizing on frontline struggles for housing justice that these systemic things um, impacted the masses in various ways. You know, and incarceration intersected with, with mental health, and mental health intersected with housing and and the violent the person-to-person violence that was a result of poverty in the underground economies that people have to commit to in our communities to survive, you know, the crack era, you know, and and the explosion of 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 violence through street organizations, um, the glorification of that lifestyle through commercial, you know, rap music, and the entertainment industry, and just just you know the the police, the ongoing police terror that's never not been uh, a feature of being black in this country, so. It started with me mentors offering me a job teaching at the high school that I was the alternative high school that I was going to because they wanted me to begin to engage in positive, constructive ways. And they saw the leadership and the charisma I had and the intellect. And they said, Well, what if we teach you how to create curricula and you can teach about these issues? And so the first class I taught, I was still uh, a senior in high school, it was called Biographers. And it was like, the, the biographies of Asada Shakur, Malcolm X and the, the history of, of reggae music as a political um, force. And I never look back, you know, and to this day, I'm still in, in classrooms doing popular education as, as a teaching artist and trying to connect the consciousness that's available through the rich legacy of, of art and music. That we have as a black people in the diaspora as well as on the continent as a means to encourage us to think about our condition um also to encourage young people who are self-motivated to be creative to be artists to engage your gift and your imaginative imaginative capacity because if, if, being, if, if creating art is something that brings you peace of mind and joy, then that's gonna allow you to keep on getting up in the morning and to imagine ways to get through life that will help you feel whole, centered and grounded. And we can do a lot with, with that inspiration and that energy that's actually generative and not destructive.
1: You mentioned um, education and obviously that's kind of a major part of your artistic practice um, with your teaching role. Um, and it's clear to me that you, you see education as kind of this throughway, um, through or this portal rather um, of sort of um, equalizing um, distribution of information, right? I'm curious what your thoughts are of like the current sort of policies that are underway to undermine education in these very specific and insidious ways um, and whether or not you think there's some sort of um, um, redress um, in order to counteract that.
4: Well, we have to just continue to speak to the issues. You know, we're in one of the, I'm in the Pacific Northwest, right? Portland, Oregon. Still, one of the whitest cities. The history of the state is is uh, you know a, a, a history where, until recently, there were still sundown towns. Right, <clears throat> black folks, Chinese um, folks were excluded. Um, multiple wars against genocidal wars against native people that aren't even in in history books, um, and. We're one of the last region, but supposedly we're in a liberal region of the country, right? You leave the people have all the right bumper stickers on uh, on their cars in the city. But when you get out of the city, it's everything is NRA and and the thin blue line. And we know that the Klan has a a massive history here. So this is America. on the one hand, it, you know the the things that are the laws that are being passed uh, to further mar- marginalize what could be called a sexual minority, for lack of a better term, right? Um, all the homophobia, the the anti-trans stuff, the the laws to further control women's um, sanctity and autonomy over their own bodies. Um, we see these things happening in the south. Um, and we can act like the South is, is this outlier, but in reality, these, these things are common across the country. The critical race theory, these things are basically wars on whatever vestiges of humankind's connection to our own self-determination that allows us to have control over our bodies Um, our spiritual freedom, um, our right to self-determination and our political destiny that we can trace back historically to the rise of of the European powers. Um, Organizing themselves in a way to conquer the global south um, after facing their own struggles for the genocidal erasure of indigenous cultures inside of Europe, and then taking that and expanding that elsewhere. Uh, Rome, the church, um, the sun never sets on the British empire, the Portuguese, the Dutch, the Spanish, the French, you know the conquering of the so-called new world. Um, these are, all these things are inextricably linked to today, they're not part of a distant history, they're part of right now. You just list, look at this war in the Ukraine and the way these pundits were talking about the the refugee crisis, you know, and, and the global response, the so-called international community. What the international community means is uh, Western Europe and the, the settler colonial states of Australia and the United States and Canada, you know, and, throw so in Zionist Israel, right? So like, what, what does that mean? When you, how did those, how did, how did Australia and the United States of America come in, in Canada, right? And what we, what we could even call Central America, Latin America, how did those places come into being? What happened to the first people? What's continuing to happen to the first people of those land masses, right? So what we have today is we have an extension of that. Um, what's interesting is the, this is the first time in my lifetime I've seen outside of the dissolution of, of the uh, Soviet um, republics. Uh, this is the first time I've seen white European countries go to war with each other. Um, you know, this is the first time this has happened since World War II. It was, it was almost like there was an unspoken agreement that it was cool for European powers, the international community to ride on the global south, right? But now, so, you know, I'm not I'm not really, I know this is probably annoying to some people, but I'm not really able to think in a linear way and narrow my focus to one thing. Like whenever I start talking about something that matters, I'm gonna automatically be scaling it out to see the intersections with, with history. You know, I'm curious. We talk, you know, people have been talking a lot about Afrofuturism and, and visionary, you know, fiction and things. And I'm I'm curious. The work that I have to do and the work that we have to do now is we do have to imagine a new world, and that's a challenging thing because the dominant forces are so insidious. Um, And, you know, I forget who the quote comes from, but it's, people have often said, it's easier to imagine uh, the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. And so we're trying to understand in our hearts that there is something better, that it is available and that it is possible, you know? Yeah, and I think that's, like, a
2: wonderful thing about, like, um, organizing and art is that um, it is that, like, place to start um, imagining new futures and envisioning these things. And, um, like, with art especially, there's no um, limitations to, like, the ways you can, like, envision and, like, think about these worlds. But, yeah, like, I to your point, I think the first step or, like, one of the first steps is to, like, yeah, like, imagine or dream about these realities and then um, start thinking about, like, how to, get there, I guess,
0: yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, I was curious, I know you do like uh, like travel and like perform all over the world, but like how uh, has that been like recently with like COVID and everything, or if that's been on break or if you now have like trips or things coming up?
4: I just got invited, uh, accepted um, after I applied to participate in the Hip Hop Asili Festival uh, in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania in June. So I'm looking forward to that. It'll be the first time I've been in Africa since um, 2018. I had went right before the pandemic in 2019, I went on a hip hop exchange trip in Moscow um, and did some hip hop cultural exchange uh, for eight days at different sites in Moscow. And I was able to continue that work virtually. Uh, we got a grant to fund more of that cultural exchange. Uh, right as the pandemic hit. And so we did a lot of that virtually. And I just did something with uh, my comrades in Moscow about two weeks before the war jumped off actually. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, I, I prefer traveling and being places in person, but, you know, in terms of the technology that we have available, we can still exchange. The only thing that's challenging with the, the cultural exchange and the performances um, in different, Places, you know, Russia has like 10 different time zones, but I would basically be up at 7 a.m. to do like an early evening show there, you know. Um, so I'm looking forward to going back to Tanzania, one of the most beautiful places on Earth. One of the few places I visited that I thought about, you know, if I ever left the United States, this would be a great place to, to land. But I think, you know, if things are getting more complex. Um, there's kind of a uh, universal, I guess, increasing difficulty in terms of ease of mobility that um, is happening. There, there's a backlash against the United States in a lot of places um, because of our policies, how, how restrictive and repressive they are. Um, and so it's not as easy for people from the United States to um, become permanent residents somewhere. Um, and then there's, you know, the COVID stuff. Like there's not only personal concerns over safety, right? But there's different travel regulations that we have to be mindful of. But I'm, I'm hoping that uh, travel, you know, travel, that's my shit, man. That's one of the best Getting, getting up early in the morning and having a strong cup of coffee in the city that I've never been to and people watching, man, you know, not to mention going out into the countryside and, and the wild areas and, and seeing the foliage and the different animals and the bodies of water. Like I really, really like when I do that kind of stuff I, I can literally feel the, the wrinkles leaving my face. Like my posture changes, like I get I stand up straighter, you know, my, my laughs are deeper. So I I definitely am going to be pursuing that. And there's a lot of projects to promote too. So
2: Um, you like talk about like being like a visionary. And I'm just like wondering if like, before you ever started like traveling and stuff like that, if like that was something you like saw for yourself or knew that you would be able to like travel the world through your like art, which is like, is amazing.
4: Well, my, my father was a visual artist who traveled the world. Um, John Crenshaw went to Morocco and Spain. And, uh, you know, he died when I was young, and my mom and him were separated before that. So I didn't know him very well, but I saw his paintings. My grandmother, Gwen, his mom, had his paintings, uh, his oil paintings and acrylic paintings. Um, all over the house in Chicago. And so I got to see these paintings that were depictions of the places he went. He would take photos, he was a photographer, and then he would come home and um, he would paint pictures. And then my grandmother and grandfather traveled a lot because my grandfather worked for Northwest Airlines. And so they got uh, great deals on travel when they went to Haiti, you know, China, Taiwan, they went all over. And so they had maps and they had a globe with push pins of all the places they've been. And they had a subscription to National Geographic. So from my early childhood, I was looking at pictures and dreaming of travel. You know, they would bring us souvenirs. And the first trip they took us on, my grandparents took us to Puerto Rico and my I was about maybe six years old. And that was the first time I've been off the mainland United States and to a tropical place. And I remember as soon as the plane door opened, cause they let you off on the tarmac. I felt that blast of like warm tropical air. And that from that moment on, I was hooked. I was like, man, I can't wait to just go see the world, you know, and I've been able to manifest it. And I, I think it was cause of that environment in early childhood and having people who sh- would share the richness and of those types of experiences with me.
1: Um, Speaking of travel, um, I looked at your Wikipedia page um, just for research. And I noticed that you managed to attend the Economic Justice and Youth Empowerment Conference in Rwanda in 2004, um, which, which would have been like the 10 year um, anniversary of the genocide that happened in the mid nineties. I'm curious about what, what kind of precipitated that experience and what that was like being there in Rwanda.
4: So I was doing work as an activist with, uh, veterans for peace education without borders, of which I'm currently the president, um, nonprofit organization and, um, American Friends Service Committee, Education Without Borders and Veterans for Peace and Iraq Veterans Against the War were organizing to do counter recruitment work in high schools to let uh, high school students know that military recruiters shouldn't, if they opted out, if they filled out this card to opt out that military recruiters wouldn't have access to their information like their test scores, their, their parental status, their economic status because they were targeting lower income youth. Um, for military recruitment. And so that work uh, got me invited to do some more organizing work as part of this, what they called the peace building project with the AFSC, this Quaker organization, American Friends Service Committee that was doing work in the global South and had a lot of work going on in Africa. Um, and they were doing some peace building work in the wake of the Rwandese genocide. And that, that happened in 1994, and so on the 10-year anniversary of the genocide in 2004, myself and a cohort of eight other activists from the United States, uh, from various cities, were invited to go to this conference on economic justice, genocide reconciliation, youth empowerment, and HIV/AIDS, in Rwanda, um, and it was a great called the Great Lakes Conference, and so all the all the countries that surround the Great Lakes in Africa. Um, Uganda, Kenya, Rwanda, um, there are folks there from Zambia, um, Zimbabwe, uh, and Burundi, and um, so there are about 60 activists from across the regions of Central and um, Southern and um, Eastern Africa, and so that was the first time I went to Rwanda, it was about three and a half week conference, the conditions of going to that conference where we had to devise a project that uh, would carry on for two years, follow-up work related to the outcomes of the project. So I was invited, I participated. um, It was life-changing for me. I didn't know going into the conference what the project was going to be, but while I was there, a number of activists uh, from Rwanda and Burundi, um, after days of engaging in really intense, we were doing like 12-hour days of, of studying and workshops and history lessons and, and really like they, I mean, the amount of translation that would happen with just, I mean, I think there were probably over 30 languages spoken, you know, among the participants. It was, it was one of the more intensive things I've ever participated in, but just really mind shattering in terms of learning the history of the under development of Africa by colonial powers, and how that is the root of these genocides that have been orchestrated. Learning that the, the, the Rwandan genocide in, in uh, 1994 was just one of many successive genocides that have been orchestrated um, between ethnic, ethnic groups in, in the region, and that the ethnic groups in Rwanda have been forced to categorize into three groups the Tutsi, the Hutu, or the Twa. And that before the Europeans, before the Belgians and the French and the Germans uh, forced, basically through violence and economic coercion, forced everyone to identify in one of those three ethnic groups. There were actually 18 different ethnic groups. that all got along, fine. you know. And that this, this manipulation and coercion and violence was orchestrated by the colonial power. So I met people who had lost their whole families to the genocide 10 years prior And they were the strongest, warmest, most resilient people I'd ever met. Um, People who come from, you know, what we would consider abject poverty, but who have a sense of self that's deeper than people who are raised in Western societies to be consumer oriented. And, seeing the, the beauty of the foliage and the, and the animals and hearing the different sounds of the birds. All of this made an impression on me that was overwhelming. In that environment, I met youth that were learning how to use computers on cardboard replicas of computers. And it was then that some activists said, Crenshaw, help us build a computer center in the region. That's And so that, was the base, that became the basis of the follow-up work. I came back to the States and I had to organize to help uh, gather resources and funding to build a computer center in Burundi, Central Africa. Uh, The computer center has since expanded into three sites and we just got another $110,000 gifted from the Full Moon Foundation to fund another three years of operation of the computer centers in Burundi. Um, That work has been um, championed by Jean-Claude Kudua, one of the comrades that I met in Rwanda, um, doing a lot of work for the Iresco, I-R-E-S-C-O, computer centers in Burundi. So it's been a gift that A, I got to have that experience, B, that I was called to action by my African comrades and given an assignment, um, C, that I was able to deliver with integrity. And that is what opened the door to get invited to do more work in Africa. starting with the Shoko Music Festival in Harare, Zimbabwe in 2012. That led to me meeting comrades who knew about the computer center effort um, and invited me to participate as a cultural activist and organizer in the African hip hop caravan in which we toured uh, with indigenous African hip hop collectives in Zimbabwe, Tanzania, South Africa, and Kenya for a number of years. And that led to the relationships that have gotten me invited to play in uh, Dar Salaam, Tanzania in June. It seems like
2: um, to do, like, all these things, there's, like, so many different, like, facets of, like, work involved, and it seems like a bunch of, like, emails and, like, paperwork and, like, all, like, the non-glamorous stuff it takes to, like, even, like, create, like, a one-day event or something like that. Um, So I'm curious about, like, what you think are, like, some like a skill set that like one would need for like organizing, but then like also um maybe like what skills you feel like you had naturally versus like ones you feel like you kind of had to like cultivate or like work towards?
4: That first meeting we had in about uh, 87, 88 Minneapolis where a hundred, over a hundred anti-racist skinheads from different cities filled the room and we we plotted and we planned about our path to unity. and and fighting white supremacy in in our respective cities together, that was the first taste of power that I had. Um, That was the power of of looking when I got up to speak and holding back tears, looking at the faces of my peers and realizing that no adults had anything to do with that. And that we did that out of our own determination. Um, That let me know I could change the world if I worked with people who had an equal sense of commitment. And um, so that I think it's, that's not a hard skill, like in terms of executive function, like it's not something that um, you can really put on a fucking spreadsheet. You know what I mean? Uh, But it's something that's in my heart and that passion is what drives a sense of purpose and it's, it's going to always help when things are very discouraging. Right now I, I work sometimes 16 hour days cause I had to take a day job to be able to afford health insurance. Um, I haven't had health insurance for years, you know and I have an 11 year old daughter. So like now I'm working 40 hours a week and all the things that I'm passionate about that don't fit into those eight hour, 10 hour work days have to happen in the evening or the weekend. And I am often frustrated um, and and worn out and weary because of how hard I have to work. People will say things like, uh, man, you need to hire a personal assistant. And honestly, I, I feel like I'd have to train a personal assistant for three years to be able to do what I do (laughs) for that. So I just got to keep going, you know, at the end of the day, what it comes down to is trying to cut things that are toxic out of my life, um, whether they're relationships or objects or people or or habits. And that's a process. It's an ongoing process, you know, Um, it's about harm reduction Um, As opposed to abstinence in a lot of ways, because things that, you know, we have relied on sometimes to help us get through are things that aren't healthy for us. Um, And also, it's about working with the right people. You know, being surrounded by people who are loving and supportive in a very organic way. People who come and check on you, people who cook for you, you know. Um people who you can go on hikes with and things like that are, that's the type of community um, that I've gotten even more close-knit with through this COVID experience. Um, Really figuring out who can I I really rely on? Who do I want to be around right now? And those are the people that help drive the work forward. I find a lot of us have a very similar experience um, where people who all work very hard, sometimes too hard, sometimes in ways that probably aren't healthy um but whenever i and I don't know if you two can relate to this whenever I look at anybody that's a contemporary or peer right now, and i say how how's how's it going?" everybody's like, dude, I'm working harder than I've ever worked, you know, so it's a common experience yeah, yeah
2: thinking about like um the amount of like work involved, what do you um what do you do for like your recharging or um, like what ways do you like take breaks?
4: Taking naps is good. Um, if I can afford the time and if I have the money, I will go on a, a trip. You know, I just went to Tulum, Mexico. That was great. I'd never been down there. Um, riding my motorcycle is good and working out or hiking is good. Anything that gets the heart pumping gets me breathing deep for a sustained period. Often is a source of inspiration because I find that ideas come. So if I have writer's block, which is, you know, common, uh, I find that when I, if I go outdoors and and work up a sweat, then I get inspired, ideas just flow.
1: I'm curious, like to that end, Um, To what degree do you feel that your artistic practice factors into that kind of respite and whether or not that has changed since it's become a part of your work life as well?
4: It's an ongoing challenge. There was a period in which, and this is where I met Max, you know, we met at uh, Caldera for an artist's uh, residency. So being able to get out of town and away from the day-to-day rigmarole, in a beautiful environment and have some solitude where most of your needs are met. Big shout out to Caldera, all the firewood you can burn, you know, <laughs> in the <in> cabin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the life. And so trying to find experiences where on a regular basis and I need more of that. Cause right now, the only thing I'm doing, I've been applying for grant after grant. So like that's extra labor on top of everything else. Right? Um, So getting away it has been good. Um, for, for that
1: mm-hmm. have you um, sorry Max were you going to say something
0: okay. Good point.
1: have I don't know if you're you're aware of this, but um you know i I stay up on the Twitter so I can see what what the what the young people are saying, but there's been this kind of backlash in the past few years um, with against like you know work ethic and the problematics of that mm-hmm. um and this idea that, you know, you know rest um, and respite is not something that you earn, it's something that you should have just as a human right. And I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that.
4: No, I do. I think it's problematic the amount of time I work. The people that love me that are close to me I also know that like it's something that it's actually been harmful to relationships. You know, it's, it's, it's hurt uh, my family at times the amount of time that I spend working. And that's something I'm, I'm still gonna be working on. You know, it's a process. Uh, I do enjoy being present with my child. I do enjoy being present with my lover. I do enjoy just chilling and taking a nap and not being engaged in productivity, which is a product of capitalism, which is a product of a scarcity mindset of being a working class person without stability and security. You know, that, that, the, the, that example was set by my parents, you know, watching how hard my mom and, and dad went because they were trying to provide something that would ensure our safety and our comfort and our joy. And in the beginning of the pandemic, we got a chance to slow down. Some of us did. Some of us didn't, right? Yeah. You know? But I was privileged enough to have an opportunity to slow down and really look at my priorities and examine the sickness of constantly being on the the hamster wheel, the treadmill, and be like, wait a minute, you can take naps, you can drive less, you can chill. I can get what would have taken uh, eight hours to accomplish at a work site. I was able to get done in four hours at the house. And then so we start to think about productivity in a different way. Maybe mental health is part of productivity. Maybe rest and recuperation is part of productivity. And this, is, this should be a human right because you know what? The sky is clearer now. And the, river and the water in the river is clearer. And the, there are more birds because people were driving less. And then it was gone. Back to the status quo. And unfortunately what happened for some of us, we took on work. When we were working virtually, we took on more projects because it felt convenient and it felt possible. Some of us are still carrying that work as we return to the physical sites of the workplace. And so that's why so many of us are working twice as hard now. And the denial, uh, the systemic and systematic denial of the the knowledge that was available when we were forced to slow down where masses of people were forced to slow down I think it's a betrayal so yeah I'm, I'm with it I'm with naps as res- rest as resistance and you know what is that group it's the there's a, a group it's like the nap ministry or a something nap ministry
0: yeah. yes that's
4: <laughs> specifically <It>, <laughs> I even got a, a night of rest Uh, gifted to me for you know so we my partner and I are going to take that soon
1: nice
2: (laughs) um yeah you mentioned uh I don't know if we were already recording or not but you mentioned uh performing at Alberta Abbey uh yesterday and then that you have uh, a trip to Tanzania coming up but yeah I'm curious uh about yeah upcoming shows music
4: um yeah I'm going to be playing with uh so we just I just released an album called Take the Power Back. It's available on all the major platforms with David Rovick's, um Dynamite album. Uh, it's me, David Rovix is a folk singer and we're mashing up folk and hip hop with live instrumentation. So I'm really excited about that because it's different than anything I've done. It's very, very explicitly political music more so than a lot of material I've released that uh, all my stuff is political, but this is more, uh, we were commissioned to basically write an album talking about the uh, public ownership of utilities um, based on you know, this mass privatization of public utilities. So there's a lot of things we cover in that album. Um, the first single off of that album is called Free Them All, featuring Opium Sabah out of San Francisco. And that's in support of the Jericho movement to free all political prisoners. That, that video is on uh, YouTube right now. So check it out, share it on your social media platforms. Um, I recently did Rebel Wise with uh, Quincy Davis and myself. That project features uh, Shimada, um, Ferrell 47 from Nigeria, Achelle Seasons from uh, the Bay. Um, a lot of good artists on that Rebel Wise project. And then I've got some upcoming releases. Um, another recent release I did on the Emergency Hearts uh, punk label out of um, Austin, Texas is called Black Skinhead. So this coincides with this narrative about the life I led as a black skinhead. And there's uh EP of some hardcore punk and hip hop songs written by Jaya Marshall and myself. And we're going to be playing those songs live in May at the Star Theater. Um, Doing a couple dates with Pharoah Mont,
0: his
4: band Thirteen. So I'm really looking forward to that. You guys asked who my top five were. Well, yeah, Yeah. on that list, that the album with Thirteen. Woo, Lord, that's one of my favorite records of all time. So I'm I'm honored I get to go rock with him. But I'm looking for that date. Um, It's in early May. We're going to be doing Portland and Eugene. Yeah, I think that's gonna be uh, May 7th and 8th. I think the seventh is gonna be at the Star Theater here in Portland. and um, I think that, oh, and then June 4th at the Star Theater we'll be doing the Take the Power Back with uh, David Rovix and myself in the live band. Uh, also appearing on that will be Libretto and uh, Talilo Marfield from Portland.
2: um yeah I'm curious to hear a little bit about uh your collaborations with uh dead prez and like immortal technique um when I was like a teenager I was like uh 2005 2006 I was like listening like a lot of like TI like Jeezy and stuff like that and then I found out uh about like immortal technique and like dead prez and like groups like that and um you know I feel like I was just like starting going to class with so much of the stuff they were talking about and I'm just curious about your experiences with them or if you have like other people that you're like some of your favorite collaborators
4: yeah so dead press specifically was really instrumental in helping us raise the money to ship the first pallet of computers that were donated by free key to uh burundi so they came out here and we i reached out to them because i had heard uh bigger than hip-hop and it made such an impression on me after you know during that bling era when everybody was that all the commercial rap that got exposure was about, you know, selling dope and, and having a bunch of material and, and, and diamonds and platinum and, and just the opulence um, and the glorification of materialism and capitalism, uh, that all that, you know, made me sick. And I was like, that's not a reflection of who I am. And so when I saw Dead Prez bigger than hip hop one day, on MTV after work. I was like, that's what's been missing, yo. <laughs> Everything about that sound, the movement, the aesthetic, it just.
5: It's still bigger than hip hop, hip hop. When it's real, they get scared, got a slave before the welfare, ain't no food, clothes, or healthcare, I'm down for guerrilla warfare, all my niggas put your guns in the air. if you really don't care, skunk in the air, make a nigga want to buck in the air, from a buck locked up in the jump in the air, shit is real out here, don't believe these videos, this fake ass industry, gotta pay to get song on the radio, really though, DP's gonna let you know, it's just a game of pimps and hoes, and it's all about who you know, not who we are. About what I know, what I go through, what I've been through—not just for no dope. Even though the rent due, what I'm into ain't for no dope or just for no fame. Everything must change, nothing remains the same. Sick of the same old thing. is bigger than blame, blame. If I feel it, I feel it. If I don't, I don't. If it ain't really real, then I probably won't. Rolling with my soldiers, live soldiers ready
3: to ride for this real hip hop. Y'all, I'm ready to die. Uh. so just ready to ride for this real hip hop y'all love- Hip hop me saying what I won't never bite my tongue. Hip hop me teaching the young. If you feeling what I'm feeling Then you hear what I'm saying, cause it's fake, fake records, just us keep on playing. What you, playin', you staying hunt, DP, bringing the funk, let the bass ride to your trunk. Uh, uh. pig with a badge, wanna handcuff me, cause my pants just tend to sag. Hip hop me, throw up your rag. Sold your flag, if riding on the bus, so you stole the jag. And one me freedom, burn the cash. Revolutionary love. love this we pass, Will they play it on the radio? Maybe not, maybe so. We gon' keep it bumpin' though. Everybody know we had it for the woe, for sure. Hey, dawg, that label is that slave ship. Owners got them whips, and rappers are slaves. If you really wanna eat, you. Got the hit, same thing with the football b-ball Or if you slangin' that dope Ain't never seen no whole brainwash video show Be foolin' for folk, what the hell I going gon' do though Huh, when the rent do, when the lights and the gas When the get cut off, drop them wrap Or cock them gas Ain't never had shit ever since we came to this bitch Why I gotta feel pain to get rich Better sackin' chips, better pack them clips, boy If I feel it, I feel it, if I don't, I don't If it ain't really real Then I probably won't, rollin' with so Soldiers
4: live, soldiers ready to ride. For this real hip hop, y'all I'm ready to die. For this real hip hop, y'all i ready to die. I was like, I I I was just so inspired by that. And then um when I got back from Africa, my business partner and I, we had started uh company called Global Fam Entertainment to support the effort to create the computer center. And my partner, Morgan Delaney, he looked at me and he said, uh, if you could do, we we're trying to figure out how we we're gonna get the computer center built. And he, I was like, we gotta use hip hop because if we, if we use hip hop, at least we'll enjoy the, the work, you know, we'll enjoy the labor. And so he was like, if you could f- pick one artist, you know, to incorporate into this project to try to help raise awareness, who would it be? I was like, Dead Prez. And so we reached out to Dead Press through some mutual connections and told, told Stick and M about the project. And they came out and did a show with Umi and we sold out the Wonder Ballroom and we raised the money to ship that first pallet of computers. And then uh, we proceeded to collaborate with them. They, you know, did a couple, uh, Stick produced a couple beats. Uh, we did a, released a video for superheroes with them. Uh, He produced Running Out of Time, which is on my Thinking Out Loud record, my first solo uh, um, full-length album. And we just maintained relationships and would play with them. We booked Lego shows when they would come to the Northwest and the West Coast. So they're they're comrades, man. Those are beautiful, beautiful brothers. I I really have uh, hold them in high regard, you know, and have had a lot of time to kind of not just rock stages with them and, and work on music together, but to chill with them too. And then, you know, Immortal Technique also is somebody who politically I identified um, a need to reach out to him and establish uh, at least a working relationship, at least a professional relationship. And so we offered him, a friend of mine had given me, Mario Hardy, big shout out to him. He would given me the first Immortal Technique tape, and this tape was so underground, it had Immortal Technique's phone number on it. And I remember one night I got the munchies and I was driving to McDonald's to get something to eat. And I was listening to that tape in my Buick and that song Beef and Broccoli came on. <laughs> I was like, this dude is a fool. And so I called him. <laughs> and his phone number was on the tape. That's how Earl underground it was. I called him directly. We talked Let me
3: make something abundantly clear for people that are so bereft of activities, they feel like they gotta comment on every one of mine. First of all, being a vegetarian should never be associated with being a revolutionary or being open-minded, that's a dietary choice. If someone wants to proliferate the type of ignorance we're supposed to be fighting by thinking that, you're just fucking yourself go around promoting beef and poultry, shoving it in people's faces, I don't castigate people for not eating steak sandwiches, and I would never diss someone from being a fucking broccoli head, or living off radishes, or eating grass with tofu, I like a lot of vegan cuisine, but the illogicality of expecting everyone to adopt their particular idea of what being healthy is, is just preposterous, I've seen some of you herbivores, and if you want to argue health. Y'all need to eat some kind of supplement Cause some of y'all are so skinny that it's disgusting Looking like the only hip-hop motherfuckers on Schindler's list Being a malnutrition ass got nothing to do With being revolutionary or being on point I'll be damned if I let somebody else push their agenda on me You know, I don't eat pork, not cause I'm a Muslim I just don't really like it, but I really will fuck a bird up And fish is good when that shit is fresh It's like my nigga Vastair from Canoxet If you don't like the smell of burning meat, then get the fuck off the planet. You know, I don't criticize people for eating moss. Man, don't open your fucking mouth about my food, man. I like beef and broccoli, motherfucker. Mind your goddamn business. Matter of fact, you know what? I'm out. I feel like some arroz con pollo, a banana daiquiri, and a motherfucking bisteapanado.
4: you know, we developed a relationship. And so we invited him out and did a couple shows and raised some money for some projects and got to go play a couple shows with him in different cities. I got to rock BB Kings in New York with him and met a lot of the crew, um, Poison Pin and all those guys. So that was, you know, a good period, just collaborating with artists that I looked up to, but also was able to consider Pierce was, was great. What was the other part of your question, Max?
2: Um, yeah, there's like other like favorite collaborators you had.
4: Yeah, I I, I love uh, big big shout out to Sounds of the South. Not a lot of people know who Sounds of the South are. They spell their name um, S O U N D Z, and they're a hip hop collective out of uh, South Africa, primarily out of Kyalisha Township outside of Cape Town. Uh, major organizing force for the African hip-hop Caravan amazing artists uh, singers poets uh, rappers producers a uh, lot of, lot of, lot of women black South African women representation um, anela milia Mills uh, they do regular um, women women centered artists nights um, ciphers where no men get to rock and the whole community comes out and they cook great food I got to barbecue I got to serve you know it was like the men on those nights, you know we we went to the market and we picked the lamb, and then they slaughtered the lamb, they gave us the cuts we want, and then we took it to the spot the venue, and I'm in the kitchen, like you know, rubbing the garlic and the vinegar into the lamb and um, you know, barbecuing the lamb like so that was our role. you know, we cooked that night, and the women just rocked the house and then uh the trip i remember driving back to the township and i just smelled like lamb's blood like you could smell it coming out of your your pores and stuff but any that i'm like getting going off on tangents but sounds of the south is dope their major uh force on the african hip-hop caravan collaboration compilation that's on band camp and african is spelled a-f-r-i-k-a-n another artist i love. Working with that I met recently is a young woman by the name of Jay Prodigy out of Portland. Um, She was 11 when I met her. She's one of the dopest MCs I've worked with. Um, And she's 12 now, she's doing a lot. She's got a video out where her and uh, this artist uh, Corwin Gold, uh, both of them youth um, collaborated with the Oregon Symphony and um, produced a song called Animal Control about police brutality and George Floyd in the pandemic. So Jay Prodigy is dope. A um, lot, of, lot of local guys I have a lot of respect for. Mike Cape, Serge Severe, um, Hanif, the real Hanif. Mali um, Karma is another dope artist from Halle, Germany that I've collaborated with. Him and I have a couple of videos and collaborations up on YouTube. Um, ja Robinson from Halle, Germany. Um, yeah, I think you know there's a lot of artists that I that I've worked with that are amazing people that aren't really commercially popular, but like just quality people. Kunta Kinte MCs um, out of Nai- Nairobi, Kenya.
1: And you sort of mentioned this um, or alluded to it, but who are your top five favorite artists?
4: Uh Ferromont, Shaw Rock, Lauren Hill, um, Crooked Eye, Black Thought.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: And I gotta throw a six in there. I gotta throw Rock on in there.
1: Ah. Is there like a connective thread with those six? Um, or do you like them for very different reasons?
4: They're all amazing lyricists.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, they're all black artists, even though hip hop is universal. Um, it is an African art form from its inception. Even, even the, the, the contribution of what could be called Latinx or Afro indigenous people, um, you know, Puerto Ricans and Dominicans and um, different Caribbean folks, it's still an African expression, right? Even though people try to impose a caste system because there's been an intermixture of blood and people, or some people are lighter skinned, you know, it, it's still the African rhythm and movement and oral tradition that created hip hop. So. Uh, I don't have a problem with people who are not Black or of African descent participating in hip-hop, but my favorite MCs are always going to be Black folks. And I like Shah rock and Lauryn Hill because of the the fire and the clarity that they represent. And I think it's important as a man to like um, incorporate awareness um, enthusiastically for the spectrum of hip-hop that's available and In an environment where hip hop gets the label of being patriarchal or misogynist, I think it's important for us to hold space and remind people that there's more than that. In hip hop, there always has been. Um, And there always should be. Feral Mons just lyrically is like a beast. Like, I feel like uh, our brains might've been separated at birth Mm -hmm. because the way that he chooses uh, to use his language, and his range of vocabulary, his inflection. It's just, it's a dynamite. Um, I like MCs that make me wanna be a better MC, you know? Rakim was just the original, back before gangster rap and, and conscious rap were marketed as separate genres, Rakim had all of that in one package. And it wasn't gangster because he was talking about shooting people. It was gangster just because the way he sounded, his swag was just gangster, you know? Um, the authority and the the, the the comfort that he has is just so laid back yet dominant. And I got to do a tour with him and I got to meet him. And I was afraid uh to, to bug, I always try to give stars their space because I know people sweat them all the time. And I was starstruck, but by the time I got up to Courage on the last date we did on the West Coast leg, I said, hey, man, can I take a picture with you, man? He was the most down-to-earth, like, nice dude, you know? Um, Crooked Eye is slept on. He's, do y'all listen to Crooked Eye? My God, this dude out of Long Beach. He's a force, man. He's one of the craziest lyricists out uh, just just relentless like impeccable and of course black thought you know same thing um uh taking the skill of lyricism to a level that few can and making you respect the craft like you you can't listen to black thought um and not respect lyricism and authority over language you know and it to see that this is not just uh, an art for entertainment. This is something that it's almost like uh, a martial art, you know, it's, it's a warrior practice. And, and, and I think that everybody on that list embodies that, you know, Shahrock, man, you know, same thing, same, same level of skill and saying real things. It's not just braggadocio. It's stuff that would be, that I find inspiring you know, it makes me want to be better at what I do.
1: I'm curious, like, because I I experienced this with some of my favorite um, artists, but like, you know, we are people who change and evolve and grow. And I'm, I wonder, are there certain like lyrics, um, or tracks that you'll hear from the back catalogs that you're just like, ooh, that doesn't quite hit the same anymore?
4: Uh, yeah, that's, you know, that what that's true, what genre that's true for, for me, especially is for punk, mm-hmm. hardcore punk. I, I had, like, The Misfits was my favorite band. Mm-hmm. Suicidal Tendencies was my favorite band. I got, it's funny, I was in a, on a hip hop ex- cultural exchange trip in, in Havana, Cuba in 2018. And I was at the bar uh, getting some food and my boy texted me. He's like, you're in Cuba, right? I'm like, yeah. He's like. What city are you in? I'm like Havana. He's like, dude, suicidal tendencies is playing there tonight. I'm like what? So I got in a cab, you know, and caught their show. It was their first show. Their their current drummer, or the drummer at that time at least, he was he was Cuban. So that was like big a big deal for them to play there. But you know the 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 lyrical content, the level of intellectualism in the lyrics, um, and even some of the musical arrangement. When I listen to some of it now, it feels really juvenile. Like it feels like it was made for my teenage brain, yeah. but it doesn't. It, it 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 does. It doesn't sustain the growth that I've experienced between you know the '80s and now. It does take me back in a nostalgic way, but it's not intellectually or spiritually oriented in a way that um, it's tied to my struggle. It's more about like the the anger, the angst, and the raw power of of teenage expression, Um, but not so much like, I remember being a kid and not not understanding why people listen to music without lyrics, like classical music and jazz, you know, but as I've gotten older, it's like, I want to hear somebody not talking.
2: Yeah. Then kind of like speaking about like uh, your like punk um, skinhead past, do you still like consider yourself a black skinhead or was that like a moment in time?
4: I am a black skinhead um, because it's a lot of who I am, um, who I become wouldn't be possible without that period. I don't dress in the uniform. Um I started losing my hair when I was about 22, which was a bummer because it was right around the time I decided I wanted to grow dreads. (laughs) Twisted my hair up and then there's this male pattern baldness. And, you know, to go start going bald at 22 was heartbreaking. I was like, I remember like, oh shit, I wonder if that Rogaine shit works. You know, because I was like thinking that I wouldn't ever be able to get anyone to date me for being like, I felt like a mutant. And then now that I'm about to be 52, I'm like, at least I'm old enough to rock it with pride, right? But it's all, uh, the first tattoos I ever got were like skinhead and baldies. So I just, you know, I'm, I don't wear the uniform because uh, there were limitations to the the fashion um, that didn't incorporate all that I wanted to express about myself. And the scene wise, like I, I'm still, uh, a lot of those guys are still some of the best friends I have, you know? Um, those are the people who I would call if I had to, you know, bury somebody, um, they would show up with a shovel. But the key is we also learn like, don't ever put me in that position. Mm-hmm. And going through that, that kind, the kind of trauma bond and the loyalty that we have is unsurpassed. Um, so um, we, we all don't wear the uniform, but we all still have the ink and It's been a bit of a revival. You know, we had a 35-year reunion for the Minneapolis Baldies because uh, Twin Cities Public Television did a really cool documentary on us. Um, The It Did Happen Here podcast highlights a lot of that history. So check that out, people. Um, It's the connection between what we were doing with ARA in the Midwest and really ties it into the story of what was happening here in Portland in the 80s um, and 90s with the murder of... uh, an Ethiopian student named Muligeda Sarah, um, by people who had been uh, radicalized by white Aryan resistance and American front, um, and the Portland anti-racist effort held by the Skinheads Against Racial pre- Prejudice, um, Rose City, Portland United Baldies Coalition for Human Dignity, and others in this this region. Um, so yeah, it's it's still a huge part of who I am. I, I've been toying I I think I might have to buy some of the gear again. And I think I might have to put on a uniform, I'm working on a screenplay about it, I'm working on a book about it as well. Get some, uh, what are they,
2: some Ben Shermans. Ben some, Sherry, uh, some Fred Perrys. Yeah, Fred Perry,
4: some, um, that's what I'm thinking. box, <laughs> some, some, some shoelace braces. I got, I got the flight jacket, you know, just got an, another nice pair of docks. So, you know, you might see me out there, uh, boots and braces up looking like the black Joe Hawkins. Yeah. Uh, what's his name? Joe Hawkins.
2: <laughs> um, I know you're like, yeah, super involved with like the, the hip hop scene here. But do you feel like, yeah, any connection to like the punk scene in Portland?
4: Yeah, I, I mess with uh, people, you know, I, like I said, some of my best friends are, still active in the skinhead scene here. And, um, you know, the artwork for black skinhead is a black crucified skin. I used to love that crucified skin, the iconography of it, but I noticed the face, everything was two-tone, the pants, the shirt, the boots, but the face would always be white. So I like did that and put a black face on it and made the colors red, black, green, and gold. Um, But yeah, I'm I'm still inspired by the, you know, the political consciousness, the radical leftists anti-authoritarian anarchist uh, tendency and even some of the red and socialist tendencies that were available to punks who were serious about political activism and consciousness is something that is uh, deeply uh, respected, appreciated and necessary, um, and it, especially in a predominantly white subculture, even though I don't wanna erase the, all the non-white punks you know, that are out there, because those are my kin, but um you know these this talk of antifa and the black bloc as a tactic that gets lumped in to with more of a visual expression of what some would consider a fascist or a anti-fascist fashion statement um there's a lot of people who who are doing some good thinking and some good mutual aid and direct action especially in the wake of the recent uh George Floyd uprisings that are part of that scene you know so we need we need them, even though I don't agree sometimes with some of the uh, interpersonal politics that happen in that when that becomes a more of a scene, um, I still think that radical, anti-authoritarian, anti-capitalist white people are a necessary revolutionary force.
0: To pivot a little bit, um, or
1: rather, to go back um, to the to the music, um, I'm curious, what are what is your musical arts origin story?
4: Mm-hmm. Growing up, South Side of Chicago, mm-hmm. didn't really see white people for the first few years of my life, unless they were mailmen, teachers, police officers, or bus drivers. Mm-hmm. Um, my uncles were wild. They were in the streets. Uh, I come to find out later, you know, a couple of them were vice lords. One of them was a black outlaw biker. Um, you know, they were they were children of the late sixties and seventies, and so they they were they were partying. You know, they were taking psychedelics, and it was their record collection that not only had Parliament and Shaka and Khan and Earth, Wind and Fire, but it also had uh, Led Zeppelin, you know, and Foreigner and Pink Floyd. And so I would, I would look through their records and it was first the artwork of the rock albums that used to trip me out. Um, and I was able to see some common threads in their, their dress codes and the way that they looked and expressed themselves and the way that these musicians looked and expressed themselves. Then when we moved from the South Side of Chicago, to some smaller communities in Illinois, as my mom was trying to finish up her college education. Um, My stepdad was trying to pass the bar exam and so forth. Uh, We went from being able to listen to black radio to only getting rock music on the radio. And that's when I started to fall in love with heavy metal. I remember the first album I bought was actually ACDC, Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap. It was something about ACDC sound. And so by the time I started junior high, when we moved to Minnesota, I didn't really fit in because we had moved around too much. And I would get ostracized by the Black kids in the hood. They'd be like, you talk like you're white. Because um, we had been living in these smaller communities. Whenever we go back to Chicago, they, they, they'd they make fun of me for that. And uh, the white kids, the mainstream white kids were you know just racist. And, and so I started fitting in with some of the dropouts, the burnouts. And they were listening to heavy metal. And they were turning me on to Black Sabbath. Um, Celtic Frost and some of those kids took me to some of my first punk shows. Um, So I say that to say that at the very beginning, it was soul and it was funk. Um, Black music was played in the household and then I was exposed to rock. And so I liked it all. And by the time hip hop came that, you know, I, when I first heard Rapper's Delight, the first time I heard rap, I was probably about six or seven, seven or eight years old in the boys club in Springfield, Illinois and the projects. And I heard somebody had a boom box and that song came on and I was like, whoa, like I something about the power in the voices, the black voices made me feel like this is for us in a way that no other music is for us and that beat and the hardness and again the authority in the voice was like man this this is this is dope and so before long i was freestyling you know before i ever thought about one day being a rapper as a career i knew how to freestyle cuz it just became something that caught on with me and i would entertain my friends talking bad about their clothes <laughs> trying to make them laugh you know and i had developed the skill that way so By the time I decided to start rapping for real, it was because it was something that I already adopted as a a hobby for fun. And so now all those elements are my music. Y'all heard Bob Villain? Check out Bob Villain, this black British artist. It's like a two piece group. Um, He's on the mic and I think he lays down the guitar tracks and then he's got a drummer. They're sick. They're, it's like it's all what I want to hear. All the elements I want to hear in music. Ooh, I've
2: asked. I've asked my questions.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I don't I know do, if you have more. I do, I do have <laughs> one more.
2: Okay. Um,
1: so um, at the in the top half of of um, our conversation, you talked a little bit about traveling. Um, and it's, it's obvious that you've, you've had um, all of these amazing opportunities to see the world um, in different sort of, um, and to have different sort of perspectives um, outside of kind of being in the bubble of the US, right? So I'm curious how all of those, ex- those cumulative experiences have affected um, the way that, The way that you see US media representations um, of other countries, um, that's just something that I'm personally kind of curious about um, just because it feels to me very much that there is kind of this media bubble um, where we're not really shown a great deal about other cultures. And there, you have to make a really conscious effort to understand what's going on outside of this. So as someone who's kind of been abroad um, and continues to be abroad, I'm just curious like how that has affected how you see the American perspective of these things.
4: It's a great, well, I need to acknowledge it's a great privilege Uh, for somebody like me, it's not without its labor. You know, I feel like I've earned my my right and privilege to travel. but that said that I get to do it, wherever you go, there you are.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: And what, what culture shock was for me uh, was learning first, how much baggage I carried as a child of the United States when I would be in environments where I wasn't in a comfort zone and realized that people didn't care what I thought, not that they didn't like me but that the things that I thought were normal, my expectations and what I was used to didn't matter because I was in a different land and there were different cultural norms. Um, And then coming to face with that, seeing some of the uglier parts of myself that were a product of being raised in this country were, was very humbling. Um, And then I began to enjoy that. I began to feel liberated by that experience. And then culture shock was also coming back here and seeing the amount of um, superficial materialists. like you know, when I, I the first time I went to Africa in Rwanda, I just noticed how much pavement um, covers everything here. You know, um, going to Europe taught me how the roots of the 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 dominant forms of architecture in the way the cities are designed here started there. You know, um, people will be like, "Aren't you scared?" Because the way that other countries are depicted, um, there's a lot of propaganda to make us afraid of everywhere else. But this is one of the most dangerous places on earth. If you can survive uh, in the United States especially if you're a person of color, you know, um, you can get along fine, anywhere, (laughs) you know? And all you gotta do is not be a dick. (laughs) And you're gonna be all right. And I've gotten into trouble a couple of times where I was a little too confident and forgot that like I stood out and people checked me, but I was able to use my intellect and not be a dick and get out of those situations you know um so i i encourage those of us that have the opportunity to see the world and maybe even consider that there might be some places to live where the overall vibration is healthier than what we experience here and i'm still on the hunt for that uh it feels i get anxious sometimes because i feel like sometimes the window is closing because there's it's getting harder and harder everywhere
1: I feel like there's a a big, there's talk of like a big push of like an exodus um, just because I think the last few years, a lot of people of color, uh, a lot of black people are just kind of fed up (laughs) with things as they are, Um, so.
4: I'm tired, I want to get out of here. I don't want to get out of here while I I still have relative health and youthfulness left, you know. Uh, I don't know where I'm gonna go, but I know it's not gonna be a white country.
1: Do you have a short list?
4: Yeah, Tanzania, Mexico, Panama. Um, I like Belize, but I wasn't there long enough. I need to go back.
0: Uh,
4: But yeah, places that are majority brown or black folks and have a lot of natural beauty. One thing I will say about Portland is my access to natural beauty is unsurpassed in terms of any city I've lived in, you know. And so I want to make sure that when I move on from this place that I have a place that has equal access to natural beauty.
1: Well, I think that that's a really nice way to end it (laughs) (laughs) on a positive note.
4: Thanks for the time, you all. I appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you. Um, well, uh, I guess we'll end it on our parting words, um, and I'll go first. Um, thank you, Mike Crenshaw, for joining us um, and t- taking time out of your Sunday to just chat with us about your experiences. Um, I I speak for me when I say I've I've been following you for for some for you know since I've been in Portland, and I really appreciate the work that you do, and I'm just Fascinated with the kind of breadth of like the, the way you're kind of working across genres um, and just you know dealing with like local and um, regional and global politics, um, it's really admirable. So just thank you for being here and talking with us.
2: Thank you, Melanie. Max. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you to our guests. Mike um, career has been amazing. To talk to you and like having you on here and all the things that melanie said like the work you do is amazing um and super fascinating um and yeah i could like hear so much more about like so many more stories um and yeah thank you to melanie co-host it's always great to go with you and um yeah thanks to our listeners
1: and then uh, mike will let you have the last word
4: thank you thank you max i'm glad we met and uh damn near got stuck in the snow forever. <laughs> oh yeah, that is true. <laughs> Forgot so, about that, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll just say, you know, uh, dig deep and aim high, you know, look for the root cause of the conditions and, and, and look to your own history and your ancestry to figure out your place and purpose. And then uh, aim high, go for your wildest dreams and work for them uh, incrementally and that'll give give you purpose as well. And, you know, capitalism is a system of economics where the worth of my existence is equivalent to profit, but the physical is a vehicle for the soul and the individual is indivisible from the whole. One love, y'all. Yeah, one love, thank you. Oh, thank yeah. you. Peace.